And we want to encourage you to be thinking now about how you can participate as we look to bless our community by providing food boxes for families in need. Uh, and so we hope that you can participate in that. You can give uh, during the, the service on the 14th. If you want to give ahead of time, you can just mark on your gift and put it in the, in the offering box for Thanksgiving. If you want to give online through our website, you can do that as well through the special offering link. Uh, just let us know it's for Thanksgiving, and we will... Uh, put all those funds together and be a great blessing to many families in need. So I think that's all the announcements that I have, and we're going to get right into our uh, message time today. Today we are again continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark, Servant and Savior, and today we come to Mark chapter 9, verse 14. If you've got your Bibles, you'll want to be there as we consider the danger of self-reliance. Boy, that's a big one for most people, isn't it? The danger of self-reliance. Now, last weekend, you might remember that we focused on the splendor and the supremacy of Jesus. Remember that he was transfigured on top of the mountain. We learned from that mountaintop experience that it can be amazing and awe-inspiring and life-changing, a glimpse of the glory of God and how wonderful that is. But we also discovered that while well, the, the mountain was a place of true encounter with God, it wasn't the place where God's people lived out their lives. The mountaintop was rarely the end of the story. And so if we live our life looking for mountaintop experiences, we're going to be disappointed quite a bit because there's going to be times down in the valley. And you might remember that Peter, he wanted to turn that mountaintop experience into a prolonged camping trip. But Jesus wanted his followers to know they can't stay on the mountaintop. If we want to share in the glory above, we have to allow Jesus into our sufferings down here on the plains. The glory of the mountain helps us to deal with the hardships in the valley. Well, about 500 years ago, a, a painter who is now famous, a guy by the name of Raphael, captured these two truths when he showed the glory of the transfiguration in the top half of a painting and the suffering of the people on the bottom. And so you see the transfigured Christ floats in an aura of light and clouds above the hill, accompanied by Moses and Elijah, and below on the ground are the disciples, and some of them are dazzled by the light of glory. Others are in prayer. The gestures of the crowd kind of beholding the miracle link the two parts together that we're going to look at today, the second part. The raised hands of the crowd converge toward the figure of Christ, and, and we're going to talk about how that scene of glory comes together with our passage today. And so in our study of Mark, we come down today from the mountaintop where Jesus was transfigured, and we're going to look at a, a scene of, we might call it, defeat. In, so I've got your Bibles. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, and I want you to listen as the Word of God is read. Here we go, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with the disciples. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed. And they ran up to him and they greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. 
And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked Jesus privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Well, this is a very vivid story. And in some sense, it's a heartbreaking story of Satan's demonic powers. Now, these types of stories about demon possession, which are common in the Gospels, are sort of mysterious today to us because we don't often see these kinds of evil manifestations around us, although they indeed still exist. Now, some people, of course, they, they think that these stories of, of demons are just describing psychological and, and physical uh, issues that are mislabeled by a, a superstitious ancient culture. But the Bible clearly teaches that Satan is living and active and reigning over this world that we live in. And he's not doing it from hell, as we might suppose. That's the last place he wants to be. He is reigning over this earth. He is called the prince of the power of the air. And under his control, a vast army of personal and powerful demons rage war all around us. And most of the time, Satan works in this world through subtle lies and disguised destruction. But whether he works subtly or very visibly, as in this story that we just read today. It is the role of Jesus' followers to confront and defeat this dark enemy, the enemy of Jesus. Because, because though, we have a tendency to be self-reliant. After all, isn't that the American way to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? We're prideful of that. We honor the self-made man or woman. But because of that attitude, we often are not very God-reliant. But as Christ followers, we are called to turn from self and to depend on him. 
And to do so, we have to rise above the earthly circumstances that surround us. We have to rise above our cultural pride to live in a spiritual reliance. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. How do we live in spiritual reliance? And so we're going to talk about three facets of this spiritual reliance. And we're going to start with spiritual warfare. To live in spiritual reliance, we must, first of all, recognize the reality of evil and spiritual warfare around us. In our text today, in verses 14 through 18, we see sort of a diabolical conspiracy. You remember that Jesus and Peter and James and John, they still have not returned from their trip to the mountaintop. And the nine disciples that are left behind, they're there at the bottom of the mountain, and they've been ambushed. Not by one side of evil, but by a whole bunch of evil. On the one hand, there's the misguided teachers of the law. And they are attacking Jesus' authority as well as that of his disciples. Jesus even said on one occasion that those religious leaders were children of their father, the devil. They didn't like that when Jesus said that. And then we have this demonized boy who is brought to the disciples, and he's traumatized by this unclean spirit, more powerful than any the disciples have ever seen, ever faced before. But they didn't know that. And so this story makes vivid the idea that evil is not some impersonal force. The demon, which is called a deaf and mute spirit, silenced this little boy's world. He heard nothing. He could speak nothing. Plus, it could turn his own body against him, seizing him with attacks and freezing his muscles. And then in those seizures, it would throw the boy, as the text says, into fire or water to kill him. What a terrifying experience for the little boy and for his parents watching. Now, not all diseases, not all seizures, not all physical ailments are demonic, of course. But this one was. And the goal of that demon was to ruin and kill that boy and to destroy the people who loved him. No wonder that Satan, one of the titles he's given in Scripture is that of the destroyer. And so whether he works through demons like in this story or in other more subtle ways, Satan is always brutal and merciless and cruel. And he wants to torment the helpless. He wants to attack children. He wants to victimize those who are already victims. It's kind of like a, a vandal in an art gallery. Imagine that, Satan coming in with his hammer and his blade, attacking the bodies and the souls of people that are made in God's image. And he hates above all else Jesus Christ and the salvation for God's glory that only Jesus brings. And so we, as Christ followers, as children of the Most High, we must confront this evil. In various places in Scripture, we Christ followers are called to fight the good fight or to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. We're called to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And folks, these are not just mere metaphors. 
This is the reality of spiritual warfare that surrounds us. And in this text, these early disciples were clearly engaged in spiritual warfare, but they seem woefully inadequate, lacking in the proper preparation. And I think it's because they had become a bit self-reliant instead of being God-reliant. And this leads us then to recognize a second facet of our reliance, our spiritual reliance, and that is our spiritual weakness. Our spiritual weakness, the problem here in this story is not actually the terrible torment of the unclean spirit that's inflicted on the little boy. The problem is that the disciples of Jesus couldn't stop it. When Jesus shows up, look at his reaction in verse 19. What does he say? Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to, be, to bear with you? I think Jesus is a little bit frustrated with his disciples here. Now, everyone there, the crowd and all that are there, could be indicted as unbelieving by Jesus' standards. But it was the disciples of Jesus who had no excuse, which was why this story should have our attention, because we are his disciples too. And it's not Satan's terrible power that stymies followers of Christ, but rather our unbelief, our spiritual weakness. You might remember, as we've journeyed through the Gospel of Mark so far, that Jesus' disciples have been charged by Jesus himself on a number of occasions with casting out demons like in this story. Look at Mark verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. When Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then a few chapters later in Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, and Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And just a few verses later in verses 12 and 13, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So when this demonized boy is brought to them well no problem right but it didn't work out that way now i'm sure they said what they always said and i'm sure they fully expected to see this boy delivered as they'd seen other times but this time no dice nothing of course the teachers of the law were right there and i can just imagine them smirking as jesus's disciples are unable to help this boy or his father. And then the demon attacked and, and Jesus' disciples are helpless and clueless. And I think it's because they're mired in their own unbelief, their spiritual weakness, their self-reliance. And I think maybe that this story kind of messes with our understanding of unbelief, which is really a good thing because Sometimes we tend to be too simplistic about what faith is and what it isn't. Now I want you to think about what the disciples did believe. What did these men believe? They believed that Jesus was 
the Son of God, God's Messiah. They believed that. They had verbalized that. What else did they believe? They believed that Jesus was more powerful than Satan. They had seen it with their own eyes. What else did they believe? They believed that Jesus was willing to come to the aid of those that were hurting and distraught and who suffered like this little boy because they'd seen it over and over again. What else did they believe? They believed that they were authorized to defeat Satan's power in Jesus' name as they had done so far on other occasions. And so I'm convinced that when they commanded that demon to come out of that little boy, that they had no doubt whatsoever that it would obey because they'd done it before. But I also wonder if they'd gotten just a little bit too comfortable with doing things their way instead of God's way. Spiritual weakness, self-reliance. Spiritual self-reliance is not always about what we don't believe. Sometimes it's about what negates our faith, what undoes our faith, what neutralizes the potency of the things that we do believe. Self-reliance can be real faith, but faith that is polluted. We all know things that lose their potency, their power, by what is added rather than what is taken away. Think about fertile ground that somehow becomes saturated with, with toxic waste. And the goodness of the ground is taken away. How about those prescriptions in your cupboards? They get past date and they lose their potency. How about gunpowder when it gets damp, when it gets wet? It loses its ability to do what it's designed to do. There are multiple pollutants in this story that turn faith to self-reliance. Let's look again for a moment at the disciples. While no one thought of it this way at that time, their failure to cast out the demon was really a failure to follow Jesus. They could not do what Jesus told them to do. Why? What has happened? What has gone wrong? Well, I want you to remember a few weeks ago, we said the central verse in this whole gospel, right in the middle, in the center place of the gospel, is a verse that defines what it means to follow Jesus. And that is Mark 8, verse 34. When we fail in following Jesus, it is because we have failed to deny ourselves and take up our cross. And I think that's what went wrong here. My hunch is that rather than being moved with compassion for that tormented boy that these disciples perhaps were out to prove their authority to those teachers of the law who were attacking them. There's a bit of pride wrapped up in that. Self-reliance. Instead of saying, we're nothing without Jesus, they set out to prove their spiritual potency to their critics. Pride. Self-reliance. But whatever it was, they were powerless because their faith, we could say, was fouled by the toxic sludge of self-confidence. It was polluted by their need 
to prove something, to be important, to be vindicated, to be right. That's never us though, is it? Pride, self-reliance. Now, sure, they still believed in Jesus, but perhaps it wasn't just about Jesus anymore. And friends, that is polluted faith. That is spiritual weakness. That is self-reliance. Which brings us then to the third facet of true spiritual reliance. First, we recognize the spiritual warfare that's going on around us. Then we understand that we have a tendency to drift towards spiritual weakness and self-reliance. And so we must pursue, number three, spiritual willingness. Spiritual willingness. Consider the, the grieving, the desperate father in verses 20 through 27. Now, the other Gospels add two very important and I think tender details to this story. Number one, the Gospels tell us this was his only child. And, and number two, the Gospels tell us that he fell on his knees before Jesus. So I want you to picture this. He brought his tormented son to Jesus because he believed that Jesus could help. He had spiritual willingness. He came because he had faith. But his faith too was polluted. Maybe it was because of the long desperation and the defeat that he'd already experienced. Maybe... His faith is polluted by Jesus' own disciples and their powerlessness to help him. Maybe that's happened with you, by the way, in your faith as well. Maybe you've had some defeats along the way, some discouragement along the way. Maybe God's people themselves have brought disappointment into your life at times. A long and painful ordeal can have that kind of effect. It can throw toxic doubt into our faith till the only thing that we can pray to God is, God, if you can do anything. But Jesus, what does he do when the Father says, if you can do anything? He puts the ball back in the Father's court. His answer to that is, all things are possible for one who believes. And the clear implication there is who believes in me, in Jesus. Can you identify with the Father's exclamation? I believe. Help my unbelief. You understand that that's a prayer. That's a beautiful, powerful prayer, a wonderful prayer. Clear spiritual willingness voiced out loud. I believe help my unbelief. It's like an antitoxin. It's like pollution control for the heart. And so does Jesus answer his prayer? He certainly does. Jesus delivered the man's son. And then when the boy lay there lifeless, Jesus raises him up to his feet. And we're left staring in amazement at that boy. But I want you to see this. In that moment, the father's prayer for himself was also answered. Help my unbelief. 
Jesus helped that father to overcome his own unbelief in that moment. And friends, when our faith is diluted by our desperation, by our defeats, then we must take up this father's prayer. That prayer of great humility. This is the prayer that those disciples should have willingly prayed when it came, they came to understand they couldn't get rid of this demon. If you cannot believe God will give you all that he has promised, then believe at least that Jesus will help you in your unbelief if you ask him. Because nothing is more important for Jesus' disciples than unpolluted faith, a true spiritual willingness. Now, there's one more interesting detail in this story, and it's down in verses 28 and 29. There, there was some sense in which this appeared to be a particularly powerful demon. Jesus says, this kind this kind, and that's a very specific word in the original language, and it has the, the, uh, the sense of this class or this type. And apparently this, this spirit, this demon, was in a different league than others that the disciples had faced previously. Now that doesn't excuse their spiritual weakness and unbelief, but it does under explain why this spirit had been more resistant than others that they had faced. But even in their failure, though, it didn't occur, apparently, to the disciples to pray. I assume that in the past, they had probably said something like, in the name of Jesus, come out of him. And that worked. And it probably would still work in this instant. But perhaps it's because they lacked that heart humility of praying to Jesus first. When Matthew retells this part of the story, Jesus tells the puzzled disciples that they had failed, these are his words, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can tell a mountain to move. Nothing will be impossible for you. That was Jesus' diagnosis of the problem here. Now here in Mark, he gives us the medicine, the answer to the diagnosis, and that is to pray, to ask, to have just a little faith, be willing to move from self-reliance to God-reliance. Friends, so often we get stuck, stuck in our spiritual momentum, and we don't understand why. And often it's because of just a very simple answer. We're not asking. We're not praying. We're not seeking the God of glory. The God that was on the mountain being transfigured, who was now present in that spot and in that time, and who, by the way, is now present in your life if you've given your life to Jesus. Phil Calloway didn't know what to say when his young children asked if mommy was going to die. His wife, Ramona, suffered horrible seizures. Hundreds of friends and relatives and church members prayed, but Ramona continued to get sicker. Her weight 
eventually slipped below 90 pounds. Doctors, medical specialists tried everything. But by the fall of that year, the seizures were occurring daily and sometimes hourly. Phil rarely left Ramona's side. He wondered if she would even make it to her 30th birthday. On one late afternoon, when things looked utterly helpless, Phil paced in the darkness of their backyard. And then he fell to his knees. God, he cried out, I can't take it anymore. Please do something. And as he sat there on his knees in that dark backyard, suddenly a doctor's name came to his mind, one he had never heard of, one that he'd never met. The next morning, Phil called the doctor's office. And lo and behold, that doctor arranged to see Ramona that day, and just a few hours later. And within a few hours of that, the doctor had diagnosed a rare chemical deficiency in Ramona, one which could easily be treated with some simple medications. He caught something that no one else had seen. And within a week, Ramona's seizures had ended. Her eyes sparked again. The miracle was so incredible, Phil says, God gave me back my wife. That's a powerful story. I said earlier, unbelief is not always about what we don't believe. For Christians, unbelief is often polluted faith. Faith that has lost its potency. That happens most often when we disciples fail to deny ourselves and take up our own cross. That happens when we revert to self-reliance. That happens when desperation and defeat leave us weak and doubting the Lord's ability or desire to conquer the power of Satan that might be tormenting us. That happens when, in the face of fierce, dark power, we fail to pray. Now, I can't guarantee that every outcome in your life will be as miraculous as it was for that little boy at the bottom of that mountain. I can't guarantee that it will be as amazing as it was for Ramona and Phil Calloway. But friends, here's what I can say to you. If you are willing to let go of self-reliance and to move from weakness to willingness, then you too can experience the mighty work of the Lord as you cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. May that be your prayer this week, this coming month, for the rest of this year as you walk through the days that sometimes can be dark and dreary but that always that glimpse of hope is ahead of us when we trust in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father God we are weak 
And Father, you know that because you made us. So Father, we thank you that in your great wisdom and might and strength, Lord, that you had given, you have given to each of us who have submitted to you as Lord and Savior. You have given us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit that can guide us and encourage us and convict us and lead us. And so, Father, my prayer today is that when we are weak, Lord, that you would bring strength into our life. Father, that when we are weak, that we will lean on other believers and not on ourselves. Father, that when we are struggling, that we will share our struggles and not be prideful to do it on our own. Father, when we feel defeated, may we remember that that is a lie of the evil one who wants us to believe an untruth. Lord, that we are not defeated that way when we are under the blood of Jesus, that we are victors, that we are winners, that we are more than conquerors because of what Jesus has done for us. Father, today we say we believe. Help us in our unbelief. In the precious, holy, and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.